The defense secretary quits in protest. The U.S. special envoy charged with defeating the Islamic State does the same, telling colleagues he could no longer in good conscience serve this president. A national security establishment trembles, worrying if the world may be unraveling before its eyes. But President Trump, having presided over yet another government shutdown, does what he always does. He doubles down. He flies off to an airbase in Iraq and tells the troops, we're no longer the suckers, folks. In the course of doing so, Trump does much else that he always does. He attacks the Democrats, signs Make America Great Again hats, and tells a bunch of whoppers to the troops, claiming falsely that they hadn't gotten a pay raise in 10 years, and then boasting that he gave them one more than three times bigger than he actually did. Are we really no longer the suckers, or have we once again been sucker-punched? We'll discuss with a retired Marine Corps general who served as a top commander in Iraq and Afghanistan on this episode of Skullduggery. There is absolutely no collusion. I didn't make a phone call to Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. Everybody knows it. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. How many times do I have to answer this question? Can you just say Russia yes no is a ruse. I'm Michael Isagoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. Quite a uh, Christmas week for the president uh, after all the turmoil of the resignation of his defense secretary, James Mattis, and uh, the special envoy, Brett McGurk. The president flies off to Iraq. Interestingly, he does it on the same day. The New York Times had this fascinating story about how he avoided serving in Vietnam, getting this diagnosis for bone spurs from a podiatrist who actually was renting an office from Trump's father and apparently, according to the podiatrist's daughters, was looking for some sort of favor from Fred Trump. And so... He gave the Donald the bone spurs diagnosis. All right. Well, first, we should say that uh, they have no documentary evidence of this. That's and true. Both the podiatrist's daughters are not big fans of Donald Trump, and they're Democrats. But it's a good story. I, I, but it's a good story. And I also I think there's a point, yeah. an interesting point here, which is that with Trump, there's always this kind of duality of you know the sort of perceived vulnerability and weakness, fear of of being perceived as weak. And then the bragging and boasting and narcissism that you see from him all the time. And so I think you can draw some line, frankly, between this story and this episode, true or not, and uh, what we saw from him in Iraq, yeah. uh, where he is, frankly, boasting about getting <laughs> the troops this big pay raise, which, which didn't, didn't happen, yeah, right? Yeah. And so, you know what? Presidents go to war zones to support the troops and to show their respect, right? right? When Donald Trump goes, it's really all about him again. And, you know, it reminds me a little bit of his uh, first days as president. Yeah, the crowd size. When he goes goes to the CIA and he's standing before the wall of stars, you know, which commemorates fallen CIA officers you know, making extraordinary sacrifices for the security and freedom of their country. And what does he do? He boasts about the crowd size. Yeah. You see this pattern over and over again. And just to be clear, what he said to the troops in Iraq is that he'd given them a 10 percent pay raise and that the forces had not received a pay raise in more than 10 years. Both are demonstrably false. The actual pay raise was 2.6 percent, not 10 percent. And they have gotten raises every year. Yeah. For decades, going back to the early 80s. Yeah. So you wonder why his former lawyer, John Dowd, did not want the president to sit down with Robert (laughs) Mueller for a a face-to-face interview on uh, matters relating to Russia. 
All that said, we talk about uh, the president's uh, untrue statements uh, all the time on this show, but this was quite a week in in national security circles uh, from the resignation of Mattis, the one adult in the room who made everybody feel good uh, that uh, there was somebody who had some experience in military affairs advising the president, and uh, then uh, Brett McGurk, the guy in charge of uh, defeating the Islamic State, resigns as well because of the troop pullout from Syria. These are serious matters, followed by the president's intention to withdraw half the troops in Afghanistan. Um, These are big, major decisions with real national security implications. Exactly, and it's the reason, I think, that for the first time we saw a lot of you know, senior Republicans in the Senate, for example, who have generally supported this president, shaken. Because these are the kinds of actions, unlike, you know, certain tweets that have potentially life and death consequences. And I think when we look back at this year, as we head into 2019, people will identify this week as a kind of inflection point, as a really important uh, moment. And Mm -hmm. we are fortunate at Skullduggery to have a truly excellent guest to talk about uh, all of these issues. Um, Let's do it. We are now joined by somebody who's uniquely situated to comment on the turmoil in U.S. national security circles at the moment. General John Allen, retired Marine Corps general, was a top U.S. commander in Iraq during the Iraq War in Anbar province. He later was the deputy and then acting commander of the U.S. Central Command, succeeded by General Mattis. And then he went on under President Obama to be the U.S. Special Envoy for the defeat of the Islamic State and was succeeded by Brent McGurk, who just resigned this week as well. General Allen, welcome to Skullduggery. It's great to be with you. Thank you. So let's start out. There's so much to talk about here, but I'd like to start out with the president's trip to Iraq this past week. He flies into the airbase. It has the feel of a political rally. He's signing Make America Great hats. He makes a few claims about U.S. military pay raises, uh, which seem to have been inflated by the president. What did you make of the president's appearance? Well, it's hard to overstate just how important these visits are to the troops. I was in Iraq when uh, President Bush visited us. He flew into the same airbase, al-Assad, out in the western desert. And I was in Afghanistan uh, when President Obama visited us. First of all, they were very quick to visit the troops. They spoke about the troops all the time. And having them on the ground meant the world to the troops. This has been a long time coming for this administration. And uh, I applaud the president for finally coming out and visiting the troops in Iraq. How about Uh, the way he handled it? Yeah. You know, we didn't need a political rally. We, we need the troops to be motivated by the president of the United States, their commander-in-chief, and not find themselves uh, being drawn into uh, cheering over political statements about whether the Democrats did something or didn't do something or whether he was getting funding for something or not getting funding for something. Our military is the greatest military on the planet because of civilian control of the military, and inherent in that is that the civilian control will not politicize our military. And so come to the theater. Tell them how brave they are. Come to the theater and and share their danger and tell them that they've done so much to protect their country and that you love them for their dedication and service. Don't come to the the war zone and attempt to politicize the troops by drawing them into a political rally. Well, let me ask you about sort of using this event and how he handled it to talk a little bit about his approach to uh, foreign policy, American national security interests, and exactly what our, our mission is in this part of the world. Because when he was, while he was there, he was asked about uh, withdrawing from Syria and the uh, resignation of Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis. And among other things, he said, uh, we're not suckers anymore. And he seems to have a very kind of transactional approach toward pursuing our interests. And I wonder if you would uh, care to comment on, on that just more generally. Sure. Look, the United States has always been a great nation because of our relationships overseas. 
And I think after 9-11, uh, the limits of American power became starkly obvious to us. We have been uh, the convening power on the planet for many years, many decades. And the presence of the United States in any multilateral organization has always been transformational. It wasn't transactional. Transactions tend to convey that someone is going to end up on top and someone isn't. It's a deal. And that's not how we do our foreign policy. Our foreign policy is predicated on the strength of the United States leading the community of nations to achieve something bigger than simply the arithmetic sum of the parts. We're transformational in the global system. We're transformational in the community of nations because of what we stand for, our origins, and all that we seek to accomplish uh, with the community of nations. And when you remove both our willingness and our capacity to be that transformational power, when you seek to create the appearance that we're a transactional power, where multilateral organizations are no longer valued, then it enormously diminishes the role of the United States for good in the world. And that's what's happening here. And that's, that's what we see when we move in that direction. Well, let's drill down on that a little bit. I want you to talk a little bit about what you think the strategic implications are of this withdrawal from Syria. And I guess the first question is, is the policy itself more concerning to you or the way the president did it? In other words, fairly impulsively, without real coordination with our allies, without a lot of consultation with the military. And then just secondly, Richard Haas, the chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations, tweeted, welcome to the post-American Middle East. So in terms of our strategic interests, are we in, in essence giving the Middle East up to the Russians and the, and the Syrians, particularly in Syria? Yeah, well, let me come to that, and if I miss it, come back to me. I will. From the very beginning, when we took on the Islamic State, we had very few options in Syria. And I can remember saying to Brett McGurk, who would be my replacement, and saying to Secretary Kerry and saying in the White, White House sit-room, the entire border of Syria and Turkey at that particular time was what we call blackened up. And the color on the maps that the Turks would give us for the Islamic State was black. And the entire border south in Syria was colored into that, uh, in that color, black. We had very few options. We had no allies on the ground. We couldn't, couldn't see through the Islamic State. And then you'll remember we had uh, this fight at a town along the border called Kobani. Uh, and the United States piled on in that fight. And what we discovered in that fight was that the Syrians would fight. Not just Syrians, but Kobani was largely a Syrian Kurdish town out of the YPG, which is the Syrian Kurdish movement. And when we discovered that they would fight, we began to fashion a, a major operation using our special operators, working with the Kurds and the other Syrian forces in northeast Syria to take back that border. And from roughly the KRG, the Kurdish regional government in northern Iraq, all the way to the Euphrates, we cleared that border with American troops advising the what we would call ultimately the Syrian Democratic Forces, advising those forces and applying coalition firepower. And that was, the th that was the theory of the case all along. And this is where the United States wants to position itself in the future. You'll recall that there was a large outcry in this capital, in Washington, to put American combat troops on the ground to deal with the Islamic State. <clears throat> and many of us who were watching this unfold disagreed with that. Now, it was a valuable conversation because it smoked out the things that we thought we could do. But to reinsert American combat troops into Iraq and ultimately to push those troops across the border into Syria would have introduced yet again the antibodies of a foreign coalition on the ground, which had destabilized so much of the Middle East. So what we wanted to do was to work through the indigenous forces to advise them, to train them, to provide our firepower to them, to give them the capacity to take the ground back, and this is an important term, for them to become the defeat mechanism. A defeat mechanism that didn't have to be extracted at the end of the fight. So we always knew that we would end up at a point where American troops would come home. That isn't really the question. Where we found ourselves in Syria at this particular moment, having trained about 60,000 fighters who had delivered 
very clear success against the Islamic State and the capacity to defend themselves from the regime, we found ourselves in a position where the liberated populations needed now to be stabilized, to be stabilized and to provide the kinds of support necessary to reinvigorate the local population. Thousands of people were returning to Raqqa. Markets were opening up again. People were living a normal life out from underneath the subjugation of the Islamic State. And that needed to be nurtured. It needed the presence of the coalition both to prevent the backflash, if you will, of the Islamic State, which could easily happen if the pressures removed, to continue to prepare the forces necessary to defend that population, the Syrian forces, and to flow the resources in to stimulate the local economy, which can then create the stabilization necessary for the, for the population. You know, I think you're, there's one, one quick follow-up here, because I think you're hitting on a really important point. I think for the average you know, listener out there, they don't necessarily understand why such a relatively small force, 2,000 service members, can make such a difference. And unless you are one of those people or a family member or a friend of someone there, 2,000 people just doesn't seem like a lot of people. So just give us a, sure. a, a little bit of a sense of how they're force multipliers sure. in, in that setting. You know, I, I was an advisor on a previous occasion early in my career. And we used to say that advisors <clears throat> were the steel rod up the backbone of the indigenous forces. And when you'll see an advisor with a, uh, an indigenous organization of some form or another going forward under fire, the presence of the advisor in their ranks creates enormous confidence. First of all, that they're not going to be abandoned, that they're not going to be left to themselves. And the presence of American special operators, and there were Marines in there as well, the presence of American special operators did two things for them, several things actually. One, it provided them expert advice on how to be successful in close combat or in the tactical environment. It provided uh, the kinds of supporting arms that the, only the United States and the coalition can provide pinpoint surgical fires to destroy the enemy in positions so then the indigenous force could walk up on that position and take it, although they had to fight pretty hard. And third, just the presence, just the presence of the foreign advisors gave them confidence that they would not be abandoned. Okay, General, a couple of things. First of all, you said that you were keenly aware that U.S. forces can be antibodies in a uh, foreign country like this where they actually become, inspire attacks against us because uh, we are a foreign country on another country's soil. Sure. And then secondly, you know, for how long? You said, you know, we got to be there because if we leave, the uh, Islamic State can come back. That sounds very much like the strategy or lack thereof we've had in Afghanistan for 17 years. And people look at that and see a perpetual war. Mm -hmm. How is the Syria? We'll get to Afghanistan in a moment. But how is Syria any different? It's a country in chaos with a hostile dictator, still the president, much bigger presence by the Russians and the Iranians, people have a hard time seeing what the long-term strategy here is. Well, or well, would be if the president were committed to what you're saying sure. he should be doing. Well, it's not a tactical strategy. It has to be a strategy, yeah. which means strategic. And when you seek ultimately to stabilize that large a population, we have to have some kind of skin in the game with respect to the political outcome as well. Those of us who were watching this unfold, be, unfold believed that for we would be there for some period of time. In fact, I think the National Security Advisor and the Secretary of State believed that we would be there for some period of time so that the United States had a say in the political outcome of that particular conflict. What's some period of time? I don't know what some period of time is. I think Joe Dunford could tell you if he were here. But I think it's conditions-based and not, uh, not on a timeline. Not, uh, it's not an end date. It's an end state. First thing to do was necessarily to stabilize the population so that we could recover those folks ultimately from what they had just they had just suffered. The second thing to do was to not abandon them ultimately to the regime with the Russian firepower. And we'd seen that occur in other places in Syria where the regime, once it recovered, uh, a population that had resisted them were slaughtered en masse practically. So we needed to stay there long enough to be the protective presence as well as the stabilizing presence. And then we had to be a participant in the political outcome, the political conversation on how Syria would evolve over time. That might mean we'd be there for some period of time. 
But as Dan just said, you know, it's 2,000 troops. We've got thousands of troops around the world today. Yeah. We have thousands of troops below the uh, DMZ in, in Korea. And we stayed there. This is the key point. We didn't just win the kinetic fight. We stayed there long enough to create a stable environment within which then political capacity could be developed and economic uh, capacity could come as well. So I can't tell you the date, and my right. guess would be that there were conditions that right. were in the minds of our planners that once achieved, that would then be the trigger to bring home some number of our troops until they were all home. You know, for the past uh, several years in Congress on both sides of the aisle, I'm thinking particularly of Tim Kaine, senator from Virginia, and also Bob Corker, chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, were raising questions about the fact that we had troops in Syria, we were conducting an air campaign, and there'd been no congressional authorization mm-hmm. for this. You know, once again, and the reason is Congress wasn't going to vote to authorize the use of U.S. military in Syria without answering these questions about what exactly our mission is, what it should be, and how would we define victory. There's still no U.S. congressional authorization for any military troops in Syria. Does that bother you? Well, as you... To argue that we should stay there without any congressional authorization. Well, two things. One is they should be there because they should be there. They should be there because the situation demands that they should be there. And I fear, frankly, for their survival if we pull out too fast. Whose survival? The troops, the population that was just liberated. I fear for them if we depart too quickly. And our allies, the Kurdish That's what I mean. That's what I'm talking about. The reliable allies that we've been able to create within the SDF, Syrian Democratic Forces, which are partly Kurd, but a very large number of, of Syriac, Christians, Arabs, etc. We still are operating, and I think this is a flaw. Uh, we're still operating off the authorization for the use of military force that we got after 9-11. Basically, the AUMF that was authorized right. for us to deal with uh, al-Qaeda. Which nobody ever imagined would involve yeah. sending U.S. troops so, to, to fight in no, Syria. That is correct. Fairly and, thin reed after all these years. Yeah. And, and there was a time... Um, when not long after I became the special envoy, where we actually went up on the hill and I testified about the requirement for a new AUMF, a renewed AUMF, one that <clears throat> we actually proposed uh, and wrote in consultation with the Congress to move forward to replace the AUMF of today with a broader AUMF that gives the president, with the consent of the Congress, with having passed the new AUMF, that gave the president the capacity to commit troops for some limited period of time in other hotspots around the world, but through consultation with the Congress. We actually went through that process, but it was never completed. So it does worry me that in the aftermath of 9-11, the AUMF has not, in fact, been updated, and this is a time we should be thinking about it. I mean, there are profound changes about to occur about our posture in the region, but there are also profound changes for how we should be considering dealing with these kinds of threats in the future. And with an authorization for the use of military force that dates to within a very short period of time after we were attacked on 9-11, that is becoming a relic of our long-range, grand strategic posture in the world. And we need to be thinking about this more broadly. General, speaking of our strategic posture in the world, I want want to go back to part of my last long-winded question and get you to address the strategic implications of pulling out of, of Syria, and, and specifically what Richard Haas said, welcome to the post-American Middle East. Is that hyperbole, or is there yeah. is that something to be worried about? Well, if Richard Haas says anything, I'd be paying attention to it closely. Look, we had begun that process under the Obama administration. I don't think there was any question of that. But this specific act in Syria, the very clear appearance of our abandonment of those allies on the ground, the Kurds and the Syrian Democratic Forces, turning over that area potentially to the Turks without any real understanding of what their long-term intentions are. But I think we all have real concerns about where Turkey has gone. Are you expecting the Turks to move in? to? to Well, they they promised that they would. And the conversation at the end of last week was that the U.S. would provide some limited logistic support for them to cross the border and move into that region. I don't know what that will look like. My hope is that some part of the conversation, although I have no reason to believe that it occurred, my hope is that some part of the conversation with the Turks was that the U.S. has a a very clear expectation that those forces that we leave behind will be treated in a humanitarian way. 
and that the process for the stabilization of that population will continue under Turkish leadership, or at least will be permitted to continue under the indigenous leadership that we leave behind. But then I have no idea how the regime which promises it will recover the entire territorial integrity of Syria, I have no idea how that's going to unfold. What we do know is that between the Iranian IRGC goods force, Hezbollah, and regime elements supported by dramatic Russian firepower, we have seen some real bloodbaths in those elements of the population that have been recovered by the regime of Bashar al-Assad. So to the larger point, we are withdrawing from Syria along now some timeline that is yet to be determined. My guess will be that we'll remain in Iraq with some number of forces. Uh, NATO has committed itself to Iraq with the idea of training Iraqi security forces for some period of time. Our future with the Saudis, I think, is uncertain. Uh, we do have, I think, very strong relations still in the Gulf in a, in a number of areas. And it's in our interest to have a presence there. But as we think about the broader Indo-Pacific region, as time goes on, it makes sense, and I think this administration will probably find itself following in the, in the general strategic trajectory of the previous administration, that more attention by the United States must be paid to the Indo-Pacific region over time. And with limitation, true physical limitation on our forces, the bill payer is going to have to be one of the theaters, whether it's in Europe or whether it's in the Middle East or the forces that are in the Far East right now. In highlighting the general's uh, long and distinguished resume, I neglected to point out he's also now the president of the Brookings uh, Institute, which is uh, one of the foremost think tanks in Washington. So we should add that. On Syria and the Islamic State, though, that's our reason for being there. How worried are you now that there will, in fact, be a resurgence by the Islamic State, that they may regain territory? There are estimates of as many as, I think, 30,000 fighters still in the region. How big of a threat are they right now? Again, it, it depends on how quickly we come out. I always worry about this. One of the ways that you prevent the backflash, if you will, the reignition of these organizations isn't necessarily by large standing forces. It is by stabilizing the population and moving them into an environment where, in essence, their moment-to-moment requirements, their quality of life is such that extremist organizations have no appeal to them. So it's not just about the kinetic function that we play here. It's not just about defeating the enemy physically. It's about changing the conditions on the ground where an organization like the Islamic State has no appeal to the population. But General, our ability to change conditions on the ground in Syria seems negligible. It's still a country in chaos. Sure it is. Uh, We have very little leverage, even with 2,000 troops. You know, this seems like a quixotic mission from, you know, looking from the outside. Well, you asked me in essence, what the troops should do while they're there. And the answer to that question is that area of the ground that we control, those things that we can control now, which is not an insignificant amount of the population and not an insignificant part of Syria, we can do a lot of good there for that population when nothing else in that country for the last five years plus has been of any good to them. So we're bringing stability to a portion of the population that has not known that stability and has lived under the most horrendous conditions possible. Mm-hmm. If you can imagine it being worse than under the regime, it's, it was worse under the Islamic State. So we have to do what we can with what we have. And what we have right now are 2,000 special operators who are exerting enormous capacity, not just to defeat the Islamic State, but to stabilize the population. And victory comes not with the last round being fired, but by convincing the people that they no longer need something like the Islamic State. Now, we depart, and we'll see that backflash, and we have seen it in other places as well, especially if the regime comes rolling in and begins to effect retaliation or retribution for exactly the reason that the Islamic State was attractive to begin with, we'll see that attractiveness emerge once again. What is and, and if I may, Mike, sure. one of the things I think people have missed as the Islamic State has matured. When we first formed the coalition back in 14 and 15, the Islamic State existed largely as a physical entity controlling contiguous ground Mm -hmm. and population in two countries, Syria and Iraq. And they intended to erase what they called the colonial-imposed Sykes-Picot boundary (laughs) between the two. 
1916, I believe. That, that's exactly Sykes right. Pico Agreement. Right. Now, what a lot of folks have missed is that when the Islamic State declared itself a caliphate, one of the underlying operative principles of a caliphate is that it must, in its struggle against the non-believers and the apostates, it has to constantly be expanding the control of the population and the ground that it covers. So as we began to contain and shrink the caliphate, what we discovered were a couple of things, very interesting. Many Salafi jihadist organizations elsewhere in the world began to put their hands in the air and asked to become elements for the caliph, fighting for the caliph and the caliphate. And we saw the black flag being raised in a number of places in the world, which became known as provinces or wilayats. And so we saw one in North Africa, Ansar al-Sharia. We saw one in West Africa, Boko Haram. We saw one in the Sinai, Ansar Bet al-Maqdis. We saw one that has become very virulent now, very dangerous, called the Khorasan, which is that swath of an ancient Islamic province across Pakistan and Afghanistan. And these have ranged across North Africa, across the Middle East, across Central Asia, South Asia, and then down into Southeast Asia. If this is a three-headed monster, the first head is the core, the second head is provincial ISIS, the third head is the one I worry about a lot, and that's the one that has taken root on the Internet of Things. And it is firmly entrenched on the Internet. And its toxic ideology is not only a constant source of recruiting and inspiration, it has the capacity on the Internet using the encrypted capabilities that we see, so prolific these days, to plan strategically, to move operationally, and attack tactically. So we we have this creature that we can be convinced we destroyed physically if you look solely at a small piece on the ground in Syria, but you have to recognize that it is a much bigger place than just simply Syria, and it's not entirely destroyed in Syria. We've degraded it in Syria. We've degraded it in Iraq. But there's still a lot of capability left in this organization, and we can't take our eyes off it by declaring victory and coming home. What's the uh, impact of General Mattis's resignation? Well, he was a great strategic thinker in and of himself, and he brought enormous maturity and wisdom to the job of being Secretary of Defense. He's a very clearly an extraordinary leader by any stretch of the imagination. He's an individual who understands the history of conflict as very few people do, but he also understands it in the context of grand strategy and civil-military relations. So Jim Mattis brought to this national security team a wisdom, an experience, a maturity that you will very seldom find in one person. Um, And the president was lucky to get him, and the president was lucky to keep him as long as he has. Uh, What's the impact? Well, I think uh, those of us who have known him for so many years and those of us who have watched this administration at work, we have real concerns, frankly, that uh, his departure will remove uh, perhaps one of the wisest voices that this president can listen to on issues, the most difficult issues that he faces with respect to national security. But I think it's a blow as well to the morale of, uh, of our military because in many ways, This military could look at the office of the Secretary of Defense and into the office in which the Secretary sat, and they knew someone in that office fully understood what a private was going through when it's 130 degrees under body armor going forward under fire. That Secretary of Defense knew exactly what that youngster was going through. And there's enormous connectivity and confidence in an organization when that occurs. And uh, Jim Mattis's departure will remove that presence from the national security team, it will remove that presence uh, from this sense of confidence of our military and its civilian leadership, and uh, we'll all be watching with uh, great interest so uh, given who, the, who this president appoints so in his, so as a successor. General Allen, given the consequences that his leaving will have, as you've just laid out, and how valuable he was in this particular administration, was it the right thing? for Jim Mattis to do? Was it the honorable thing to do to essentially quit in protest? And how do you balance the sense of duty to be a kind of a guardrail Mm -hmm. in an administration like this with your personal sense of honor about the mission and and how it's been treated? Yeah, you've both uh, observed senior commanders for a long time, and uh, that's an internal struggle that every commander has. And in Jim Mattis's case, who I believe is probably one of the great honorable man I've ever known in my life. My sense was he was constantly thinking 
about uh, his personal values versus what he was being required to do. And I, I won't attempt to second-guess his motivation. I think his letter was pretty clear in many respects. Uh, but in which he didn't say anything about serving this president. No, he didn't. He talked about serving his country and serving our right. troops. And in the end, we don't serve our president. We serve the commander-in-chief as a representative of the Constitution of the United States. Although usually when you write a resignation letter, you say something uh, along the lines of it was an honor to serve under you, Mr. Well, president. May, may, maybe yeah. Jim will write that in the next one. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, look, he, he uh, I think, was pretty clear about the reasons for his departure. And it's, it's a pretty agonizing decision, actually. So I don't want to try to place a red line on what was finally crossed when he made that decision. He, made that, he may have made that decision previously. I was wondering, I mean, you, you know him a, well, yeah. and, and I wonder whether this is something that he had been thinking about before. You know, there's, there's some people have criticized him. Some people have said, well, he should have resigned when he was asked to send troops down to the border yeah. for a— uh, a mission about a made-up yep. uh, invasion from Mexico, and he didn't. He didn't do that. Well, you know, almost everybody that makes that comment never had to be in that position. So I, I'm a little easier on him than that. And he may have made that decision then. We just don't know, and I don't think we'll ever know. But the one thing I do know is that we had a man of principle and honor in that office for the entire time that he was Secretary of Defense, and he he navigated his own high moral principles against what he was encountering in this administration. And at some point, and many of us talked about this, you know, how long will this man of principle last in this environment? What would you have done if you were in his shoes? I think I'd have gone. Would you have stayed as long as he did? Oh, I don't know. That's that, Mike, that's completely speculative <laughs> okay. in this case. I, I don't want to diminish yeah. the moral choice that Jim Mattis has made, which must have been a very difficult choice for him. I don't want to diminish that by trying to second guess it. Right. Let, let me ask you, uh, just following up on what you said about the value that Jim Mattis brought to this administration? Admittedly speculative question, but I'd like to hear you think about this, how you would think about this. Uh, given that Trump is no longer constrained by serious uh, military advisors like a Kelly and a Mattis, how concerned should you are you that this president could do real lasting harm by rashly getting us into a war, for example, or, or dissolving NATO or other important partnerships? Well, let me, I won't take issue with something you've just said, but let me make a clarifying point. The president still does have some really credible advisors right now. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Joe Dunford, is as good as they come. The service chiefs, I know all four of them very well, and they are great leaders, and and the vice chairman as well, Paul Selva. They are not just service chiefs, they're members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And the chairman is required to provide best military advice to the president. Now, this chairman, I, ev I understand, evidently was not even invited to the meeting where the final decision was made. What do you make of that? Well, it's just a process foul. Is it just a foul? Uh, well, does it's, it tell it's, us something it, larger well, it, about decision making? Well, it's it, in, we should all be we should all be very concerned that yeah. uh, a decision like that is made through phone calls to people like Erdogan, yeah. and is applauded instantly by the president of the Russian Federation. Yet the military leadership was completely blindsided by that kind of decision. We should be concerned about that. But there isn't a void of experience and capacity to give him advice. The question isn't whether those people exist to give him the advice. The question is, in this policy formulation process, is this president willing to ask for that advice? And that's what we should be concerned about. I mentioned before I want to get to Afghanistan. The reports are the president's going to withdraw about half of the 14,000 troops in Afghanistan. You were there as a top <laughs> commander of troops in Afghanistan uh, from 2011 to 2013. It does look like a never-ending war at this point. You know, people look at, at the ground. The attacks by the Taliban over the past year seem as robust and as bloody as ever. It does look like we've made no progress there for all these years. Do you fault the president for trying to pull the plug on this? I do. Now, I don't fault the president for wanting to bring our troops home, just as I don't right. fault him for wanting to bring the troops home from Syria. It's the manner in which this is occurring that I think creates a major crisis for our friends in Afghanistan. I've heard from a lot of them over the last weekend, you know, real cries of despair from people who have real skin in the game, who've been fighting for years, ultimately to achieve the independence of the people there. 
And Mike, your question is absolutely the right one to ask, and it's, it's a fair question. But I think one of the things that we always have to keep in mind about Afghanistan is how far it has come, even under these very difficult circumstances, and how far it can tumble if we pull out too, too soon. If you just measure a single measure of how far a society can come, one of the best ones is life expectancy. And the life expectancy of your average Afghan has increased from, the numbers are a little fuzzy in my head, but from somewhere around 48 on the 11th of September to somewhere around 60 today. You know, the numbers of girls who were educated in Afghanistan before 9-11 was somewhere less than a million. Today, it's 40% of the 9 million children that are going to school every single day. Life expectancy for mothers in birth. But our goal in, Af- in Afghanistan has not been to rebuild Afghanistan into a robust, healthy democracy. It's been to ensure that al-Qaeda does not come back. That's, That's been right. the strategic rationale for us being there. And, you know, one cannot see, at least at this point, where there's an end game to this, that, you know, in 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, are we still going to be in Afghanistan for the same strategic rationale? Yeah, when is that's a, that's it a fair long enough? It, well, I don't know what long enough is. Yeah. When is long enough in South Korea? Yeah. We have 28,000 troops there still. And we stayed with that country when it was right. flat on its back with no functioning government and no functioning economy. Right. It's one of the 10 strongest economies on the planet today. And it's because we stayed. How about the democracy in Japan? We stayed in Japan. How about the recovery of Western Europe? We stayed in Western Europe. Now, I'm not proposing that we stay there for generations, but 17 years, we had to defeat the enemy first. Mm -hmm. And now we're getting the military and the security forces on their feet. And they're taking very heavy casualties, but they're giving as good as they're taking. What's happened now when we pull out, if we pull out too early, is first of all, we didn't consult with the president of Afghanistan. So Ashraf Ghani was taken completely by surprise. At the very moment when we saw that there was a potential glimmer for progress in the peace process, that now the the rug has been pulled out from under that peace process as well if we go out too early. You know, so my appeal to the president is make the decision. That's yours to make. It is right for you under the Constitution to make those decisions. But consult with your military leadership and build a timeline for the departure that does not, in fact, destabilize and potentially creates the collapse of what we have accomplished in Afghanistan. You know, there's a new ambassador here in the, in the city from Afghanistan. And I went to meet the ambassador the other day to have dinner. And I walked in the room, and I sadly, I hadn't done my homework that particular day. And I walked in the room, and I, I was looking for the ambassador, and I was introduced to a young woman. And she's extraordinarily articulate, and she knows Afghanistan, and she represents the future of that country, a country where the women generally talk about the presence of the Taliban in their lives as the darkness, where they had no chance, none at all. This is worth fighting for. And she represents the future of Afghanistan and a future where the youngsters who are between 25 and 35, who are the future, who are becoming educated, who do want this country to succeed, those are the ones that we have to secure. And if we have to stay there another five, six, seven years with the numbers of troops that we have on the ground to prepare the Afghans to be successful in combat, then I think that that's worth it in the end. Can you give us a little bit of a, a little flavor of those cries of anguish, as you put it, from some of your Afghan friends and yeah. people that you served with in that country when you led allied forces there? Well, one was, what will become of us now? And I thought, This was from, again, I'm protecting their identity, but this was from an individual who was a very successful Mujahideen commander in fighting the Soviets and was later a very prominent figure in the Afghan government. He, as others who have reached out to me, are completely confused about what our policy is now with respect to Afghanistan. Maybe we're not confused in other buildings in the city, but they're confused. And not just confused, they're deeply, deeply concerned that our precipitous withdrawal will create a sequence of events that can lead to some kind of a disaster. And they're just deeply worried. I want to ask you a couple questions about Russia. Okay. Um, A... uh 
strategic adversary of the United States in so many places around the globe. Uh, President Putin just this week announced that uh, the Russians had conducted a final test of a nuclear-capable glider that flies at 20 times the speed of sound. Is this a strategic threat to the United States? Well, as he would describe it, he evidently wants us to believe that it is, and that shouldn't be surprised to anyone. What do you believe? Uh, I believe he's creating systems that can negate the current capacity of our forces to defend themselves. I won't go into the details here, but hypersonic weapons are not the sole purview of the Russians. And uh, our capacity both to produce them and our capacity to defend against them is something that we're pursuing with uh, great energy. I want to ask you a question about the Russian cyber threat, because you were deputy commander and then acting commander of Central Command before that in Iraq, and it was during a time period of an operation known as Buckshot Yankee, which was designed to um, counter a Russian penetration of U.S. Central Command computers, which a lot of people look back on and say that should have been a pretty big warning sign to us of the Russian cyber threat. Did we miss the signals in that one? Well, I can't comment specifically. Uh, it's on, been declassified. Uh, yeah, but I, I mean, still can't you know. comment on it specifically. Okay. Um, they had placed thumb drives oh, oh, yeah, in, no, I, in, in the bazaars in yeah, Iraq I, and Afghanistan that were infected with malware that got into Central Command computers. Mike, I was living that dream. I, <laughs> I, okay. I, I, I remember it very well. We missed it. And I think that's different. The penetration is different than, but related to, what we consider to be the enormously capable Russian strategic influence campaign that they're waging against the West right now, and against the United States in particular. The Russians are not the sole cyber opponent of the United States. And we live in an open society, and sadly, we're behind the game in many respects. Although we're far more sophisticated today, using cognitive systems, artificially intelligent cyber defense systems against the artificially intelligent cyber attack systems, we're far better equipped today than we were before. But uh, I worry about our critical infrastructure. Uh, We have found forensic presence of uh, the Russians and and other DNA, if you will, from certain kinds of malware. We've seen forensic presence in some of our, uh, through our analysis uh, of uh, the presence of uh, certain of these capabilities in our uh, critical infrastructure, and I'm very Electric concerned grid. about that. Electric grid, some of our uh, heavy infrastructure, and uh, so we, we have got to spend a lot more attention on this. One thing that we did not talk about is our relationship with Saudi Arabia in the wake of the horrendous murder of Jamal Khashoggi, mm-hmm. um, the Washington Post columnist. This has always been an important, a key strategic relationship. How do you think that relationship is going to change? How should it change? Are you concerned that under President Trump uh, it actually has not changed very much? And what will that do to American soft power and our reputation for standing up for human rights around the world? Well, there's no question that uh, Saudi Arabia has always been an important partner of ours. But there is a real issue that we have to deal with now. And I draw the distinction between the U.S. having a relationship with the kingdom and the U.S. relationship with the crown prince. And I think that we've got to be careful not to throw the whole relationship out because of this issue. Now, but if the you, crown you, prince but, is okay, running the country, I, Mike, I'm with you. it's I'm, a little hard. I'm, I'm, with you. Yeah. I, I'm with you on that. I, yeah. I, it's important, though, that we understand there's a distinction because we can exert pressure in certain ways that can have an outcome that we might want. We're not planning to do that right now. But we had real optimism for some period of time that Vision 2030, which was the Crown Prince's roadmap for the future, was going to produce a series of uh, reforms to divest the economy, to give uh, greater uh, civil and human rights to uh, the women, to liberalize the society, to rein in the clerics, the Wahhabi clerics. We, you know, we all had great expectations in that regard, and it hasn't ended up that way. We have seen, obviously, the the war in Yemen, which is a Saudi-led coalition, which is one of the great humanitarian catastrophes right now. We saw the crown prince uh, round up somewhere between 350 and 400 other royals and entrepreneurs and incarcerate them in the Ritz and then shake them down for tens of billions of dollars. Kidnap the prime minister of of Lebanon. Of Lebanon. Uh, I mean, this H- guy seems, seems reckless. So well, the question he, he is, is, is he 
can he be reformed? Can he be re- rehabilitated? Well, I think, and this is the concern. I mean, the United States may have to take a position, a conditional position with the kingdom, that we won't deal with the kingdom on certain issues as long as he's the crown prince. We had good relations with the original crown prince under King Salman, uh, Mohammed bin Nayef. He had been a great ally of ours in the war against al-Qaeda. Is, and, is Brookings taking money from the Saudis these no. days? Did you cut it off I did. as a result of this? Yes. And indefinitely? Until uh, when? Until I'm no longer president. Okay. And and would it be and would it be your advice to the sitting president or any president that we condition uh, our certain relations with the Saudis on MSB no longer being there? Well, I think we condition the the relationship to a certain kind of behavior, which is predictable. <laughs> Don't murder journalists. Uh, well, that's that's obviously a part starting of it. point. But, but right. Look, we they got to yeah. get out of Yemen. And both uh, Secretary Pompeo and Secretary Mattis were very clear. The great help that the Saudis needed in Yemen wasn't more precision munitions. They needed the United States to lean on them to come out of this war. And they can't get themselves out of this war. And we have a number of our Arab partners that are stuck in Yemen right now, and they can't extract themselves. The carnage is going on every single day. It has become yet another flat surface in the chessboard between the kingdom and Iran, and as long as that's going on, you know, we're, we're going to have a hot dimension to the Cold War between Saudi Arabia and Iran, which will continue to destabilize the region. So these are the kinds of things that we need to condition our support to the Saudis and, on. And what is our leverage? Do we end arms sales uh, to the Saudis? Sure. Do we, sure. Do or, we... or spare parts or training or targeteering, all, all the things that are necessary. And pull out of the Yemen war entirely? Well... Put them in a position where they have to move forward aggressively to find a peaceful solution to this. And the Houthis don't want to fight forever, but the Houthis have to fight because they do have to fight. Now, I'm not taking a position of the Houthis because the Iranians are behind that, and the Iranians are very happy to bleed the, the Arab coalition over this issue. But finding some kind of a, of a halt to the conflict right now so that we can begin the humanitarian support to the population and then driving a peace process forward is the very best way to come out of that particular problem in the Middle East where the kingdom is uh, eye-deep in the process, or rather the crown prince is eye-deep in the process. Would you say here and now that you think that President Trump is a fully stable commander-in-chief? I've never served under him, so I would leave that to others to make the decision. My hope would be, as all commanders-in-chief that I have known, and I've served under two, but I think I can speak for the, the history of the others, that this president uh, should be very quick to take the advice of some of the greatest leaders that this country can produce, and that's folks like Jim Mattis and Joe Dunford and the other service chiefs. So the issue, I'm not going to comment on the issue of stability, but I will comment on the, the reality that the best performance of the United States military and the best performance of the U.S. in the security environment is one that is informed by the best military advice of our military and civilian leaders. And the president would be well served to take that advice. A good example that to get as far in the U.S. military as General Allen did, you also need good diplomatic skills, which the general <laughs> clearly has. Thanks for joining us on Skullduggery. Mike, it's great to be with you, and it's good to see you again, Dan. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks to General John Allen for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on Sirius XM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. And be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>